Paul said, I was sharing yesterday morning at our prayer meeting, I feel like it's going to be very hard for me to contain myself just even singing. I was getting pretty excited. We're going to deal with today what I believe to be a very serious topic, one that I think we have reduced to too much simplicity. If you ask someone, what is the purpose of baptism, they're usually going to answer by saying, well, it's an outward representation of an inward change, which is true. But as I stand before you this morning, I was really glad that Paul hit on eagerness and excitement to hear the word, because I'm going to begin by making a very outrageous claim. And my hope is that by the severity and seriousness of this claim, you will be spurned to excitement and readiness to receive the word this morning. My claim concerning baptism is that we as a church and as individual members of it are guilty of a misunderstanding of the glory and goodness of God as represented in baptism. And I'll follow that claim, very serious claim, by saying that my prayer over the past two weeks since Paul and I got together and I started studying this more in depth, my prayer this morning for us as a church is that as we examine the scripture, that God, for the sake of his glory, which he takes very seriously above all other things, would send his spirit to graciously encourage us and give us a better understanding. And then in connection with that, overwhelm us with praise for Himself. I want to make sure as we go through this, however, uh, that you remember the context that we're in, not just in the scriptures, but in the series on the church. Paul spoke over the past two weeks about the invisible church as God sees it, made up of all true believers from all places throughout all time. And then he spoke about the visible church as we see it gathered here this morning. And as we talked about the visible church, we kind of moved into an area of the unity of the church and participation in the church. So this week and next week are going to be focused on the unity and participation of the visible church. So if you have a Bible with you, I would invite you to turn to Romans chapter 6 and stand um, as you find it just to respect and honor the reading of God's word. And as you're turning there, finding your place, I want to place us in the context of the book of Romans. You see, the book of Romans opens with the reality, the revelation of the seriousness of the glory of God and His wrath on sin. It then moves into the graciousness of God and salvation by faith, justification by faith alone. Then we get to chapter 5, and he says in verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So you want to talk about an outrageous claim, the Apostle Paul would say, you've been justified by faith alone. You have peace with God just through faith. And people are like, what in the world? No way. That's outrageous. Then he spends what we consider chapter 5, arguing the supremacy of grace over and against sin. And he concludes chapter 5 by this statement. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So our context is the supremacy and the sufficiency of grace. You see, sin penetrates the entire being of who we are. Everything about us as we are born is sinful. Our entire 
nature. Everything that we do is evil. Our desires, our thoughts, our actions, our words, evil continually. Everything that does not proceed from faith is sin. And this ultimately leads to death. But grace is greater. And that's the Apostle Paul's argument, and that's the context we're in. Beginning in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, we read this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God. May he write its eternal truths on our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful to be called called out, called out and assembled together. Father, we're thankful for the gift of the church, the local visible church. We're thankful for being born again and brought into membership in the invisible church. And we're thankful that as our doctrine, as our foundation, you have given us your word. We're also thankful, Father, that you would give us symbols and representations that continue to communicate and show us the graciousness that has been extended to us in salvation. And Father, we confess that we are guilty of misunderstanding that, of belittling that, and we pray for more grace. We pray for grace in place of grace, grace upon grace to be poured out this morning. We pray that your Spirit would come, illuminate our minds, give us understanding. Pray that we would be humbled repentant, and encouraged. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and for your name's sake. Amen. You can be seated. Continuing in an introduction, I want to remind you here that as I said, we're going to be talking about unity and participation in the visible church, but we're going to begin that by looking at a spiritual reality. So before we get into the specific application of how this relates to the visible church, I want us to plant our feet in this passage. To be honest with you, I was really, really worried about getting up here and giving what seemed to be like another systematic theology lecture. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go to a passage and just dive down as deep as we can get into it, find all that we can find, bring it to the surface, see what we have, and then see how we can use what we've discovered there. 
And as I said, I believe the glory and goodness of God are at stake. As we approach Romans 6 this morning, though, it's important to really get our minds around the simplicity and the radical nature of grace. In 5, we said that Paul was contrasting sin and grace so much so that he would say where sin increased, grace was greater. And the picture he paints of God's grace is so free, so simple, so amazing, so valuable that he expects someone, whether in pretense, in sarcasm, or in genuine misunderstanding, to respond by saying, well, what are we going to say to that? If God's grace is so good and so amazing, let's find out what causes God's grace to be given and keep doing that so we can get more grace. So the misunderstanding is saying grace is amazing. Where sin increases, that brings more grace. Let's sin so we can get more grace. And we say, what in the world kind of question would that be? But my fear is that we wouldn't even think of that question, not because of our maturity in our faith and knowledge of the scriptures, but because of our lack of understanding of the greatness of grace. We don't understand how amazing grace is, so we don't desire more of it. And Paul's response to that is a very interesting one. If we are to understand this passage today, then we must beg God just for a glimpse. If you close your eyes, open them, and then close them again as fast as you can, that's the glimpse you need of grace because that's all we can understand. That's all we can take in at one time. But if we get that this morning, then we would say, okay, what brings more grace? I want more grace. We must long for grace. We must understand that grace and grace alone has united God and man. Grace and grace alone brought God into covenant with himself in eternity past and said, I'm going to redeem a people by my grace, apart from their works, by the merit of my son. That's grace. That's all it can be is grace. Grace and grace alone made the Son come down and dwell among us. And that's where we read that passage in John 1 where it said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory full of grace and truth. And then from that fullness we receive grace upon grace. So the very coming of Christ is only by grace and grace alone. Grace and grace alone gives the Spirit as a guarantee until we acquire what we have been promised. Thank God for His grace. The song we would sing, Amazing Grace. Amazing isn't even an appropriate word for it. There is no word for it. And we try to sum it up by saying grace. But it's greater than sin and death, greater than fear and doubt, greater than failure and time where sin increases, grace abounds. Not just to say sin goes this far, grace comes this far. But sin goes this far and grace overlaps it all the way around the world back and again and again. For all eternity, grace is eternally bounding toward us. Notice also, however, that it is belittling, I would even say blasphemous, to think that we can do something to conjure the grace of God. We can't say, okay, sin brings grace. I'm going to go sin so that God will give me grace. That's blasphemy. And when Paul presumes the question that someone might ask, he responds in what seems in our language a very professional, a very sophisticated way by saying, by no means. But in the Greek, the term may gain oh my could be equated with, are you stupid? 
That's how we would say it in 2016. So uh, do we need to go sin so we can experience more grace? Are you stupid? Are you an idiot? Grace doesn't work that way. And finally, as we approach this passage, it is important to note the most detailed description of what has happened to us in Christ is explained by the word baptism and in the context of grace. So here's what we have. We have been born again. This is how it happened. We call it baptism in the context of grace. If we don't have those ideas in mind, then we're going to misunderstand this passage this morning. So this morning as we go through it, we're going to be asking three questions. Number one, what does baptism mean? What does it mean? Number two, what does baptism have to do with the church? Okay, if you're saying that this passage is talking about spiritual baptism, then why are we talking about it when considering participation in the church? What does this have to do with the visible church? And number three, what I think to be the most important and what I hope to be the most encouraging is, how do I apply these truths to my life? This is all good. If we approach it systematically, here's facts, facts, facts. Know this, know this, know this. You leave. Okay, what do I do with all this knowledge? It's no good. So what does baptism mean? What does baptism have to do with the church? And how do I apply these truths to my life? Number one, what does baptism mean? My argument this morning from the context of Romans 6 is that baptism simply means union. In this passage, the word water is never used. Not even in the original. You're not going to find any synonyms for water in Romans 6. It isn't there. So why would we go to Romans 6 talking about baptism? Why would Paul use the word baptism when there's no water? Well, the word I think he's trying to communicate here is a reality about spiritual baptism. It is no argument when we start talking about what does baptism mean. The Greek word baptizo, it means to plunge something completely into something else. Usually into some type of liquid. So we're talking about something that's happened in the spiritual realm in which we as believers are plunged completely into Christ. That's what we're talking about. Paul is expositing a spiritual reality. The whole concept of the gospel, conversion, the mortification of sin, justification, sanctification, future glorification, every bit of it is being stressed here in the truth of our union with Christ. Verse number 3 says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? The key is the phrase, baptized into Christ. That little phrase means, we have been here, Christ was here. God has taken us and placed us all the way in completely in Christ. United in Christ. In this context here in Romans 6, you see all of these phrases. Into Christ Jesus, with Him, just as Christ, so we. We have been united with Him, crucified with Him, died with Him, live with Him. This passage literally screams union with Christ. Us in Christ. That's what baptism is about. Union. 
The word Paul uses for united in this passage over and over literally means planted together, firmly established in someone or something. When Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches, we are united with him. The same roots growing from the same stock. We are united with him. So the first thing I want us to see is that we are united in death. Verse 3 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 6, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. I think the weight of just those three verses is phenomenal. I could preach the rest of the year on those three verses. This is, I think it's amazing considering the response. This is Paul's response to the question, what shall we say? Do we keep sinning to get more grace? This is how Paul answers it. Don't you know that everyone who has been baptized into Christ was baptized into his death? After giving this simple answer, Paul goes into the discourse on the conversion of the soul. This is what we're talking about, the conversion of the soul being united with Christ. He begins, however, talking about death. Baptism ultimately begins with a picture of death. This is a historical reality. This is not something that you can say, oh, well, I died with Christ yesterday. We're not putting it in the context where the Apostle Paul would say, I die every day. Different thing we're talking about here. This is a historical reality that proclaims, when Christ died, I died. As Christ was crucified and paid for sins, when I am born again, the reality becomes, I died with Christ. I died to sin with Christ. When we're baptized into Christ, we're baptized into His death, literally plunged into, immersed completely into His death with Him. When Christ was crucified, died atoning for sin, all of those who will be born again, the elect of God, begin that process by dying with Christ. So what exactly died? This is confusing because we hear the language all the time. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. So if I was already dead... What exactly died? Christ made us alive, I thought. You mean, what do you mean that we died with Christ? Our passage there says, We know that our old self, literally anthropos, our old man, our old being, was crucified with Christ. So who dies? Our old man dies. The slave to sin, the hater of God, the adulterer, the idolater, the blasphemer, the cursor, the one who falls victim to anger and lying and sin and deceit and greed. That man is dead. Do you realize what that means? This is how the Apostle Paul can say in Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. So what does this mean for you as a believer? Union in Christ's death. It means freedom from sin. Have you ever contemplated what it means that in Christ you are free from sin? Free 
from sin. Notice verses 6 and 7 again. We know that our old self was crucified with Him. Why was the old self crucified? In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The only way to escape slavery to sin is death. The wages of sin is death. So, for God to begin to bring us alive to Himself, to give us a new life, we have to begin by dying with Christ. And say, man, this following Jesus starts with death? The important thing is not that it starts with death, but that it starts with death to sin. Freedom from the rule of sin in your life. Sin no longer has ownership over you to make you obey its passions. You've died with Christ, and thus in Christ, the wages, the punishment, the payment, the reward for sin is paid, paid for. When God baptizes you, unites you with Christ in His death, you die to sin, you die to the old man, and the old master is your master no longer, and you become free. Freedom. Do you understand what that means? Freedom. In verse 11, I say to you as the Apostle Paul said, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin. You want to know why all of us in here struggle with sin? Because we don't understand this. We don't understand that we're dead to sin. We don't have to do that anymore. We don't have to. It's dead to us. Our old man is dead that if we could be a people who realize that we are free from sin, how different this church would be, how different our families would be, our marriages, the way we interact with our children, the way we engage in one anotherness, our participation and unity in the church would be phenomenal if we understood that we were dead to sin. We don't get it. The old man is dead. Praise be to God. Secondly, we are united with Christ in burial. Verse 4 says this, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death. The purpose of distinguishing death and burial for me here, and I think for the apostle as well, is to highlight the finality of death. To highlight the ultimate reality, the eternal nature of death. Once death occurs, the final stage in sealing the finality of that person's life is to bury them. You can go to any hospital, and there will be people there who are technically dead. No brain activity. Machines are breathing for them. Machines are causing their heart to pump, causing blood to go. Artificial life. They're not alive. But their family is going to come and visit them every day because they're not dead. Now when the body dies, what do we do? We bury it. Um, I think almost two years ago my grandfather died. And the only way I can see my grandfather is in pictures. And that's just a representation. That isn't the real him. It is impossible for me to go see him like I see you because he's buried. Death is finalized by burial. 
So the purpose here, the glorious truth for us to behold, is not that our old man is just dead, but that he is buried never to be seen again. Buried, finalized. If we could grasp the finality of what God has done for us in Christ and affirmed in us by giving us His Spirit as a guarantee, and this reality of our old man is buried forever, eternity, our soul is completely set apart, dead to sin, our soul will never sin again, we would be overwhelmed with praise. So many Christians belittle the kindness and forgiveness of God in that they sin with this mindset. Well, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Praise God. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But why rely on that when we could say, He killed my old man and buried him. He buried him. I don't have to do that anymore. He's done this for you. He's delivered you once and for all from the dominion. The rulership of sin in your life is over. The old man is buried. What does this mean for you? It means peace of mind. Peace of mind and security in what Christ has done for you. I spoke with a guy this week. I've known him maybe 12 years, maybe even longer than that. Guy was instrumental in my coming to faith. And you know what he said to me? Well, I just don't know if I'm saved because I've done this. You know the reality he's missing out on? That his old man is buried. He's buried. He doesn't have to live there anymore. He doesn't have to struggle with that. His old man is buried. He's relying on himself. And he's relying out of the power of this body to not sin. And it's not there. The power isn't there. The power's in God's grace that takes your old man and buries him. Done. Never to be seen from again. Our confidence then is not that this flesh will never sin. Our confidence is that the only way to escape this flesh tainted by sin is to get a new one. And that's the promise of the gospel. That we, as we enter into the kingdom of God, will be given a new body. Where our spirit that is made perfect in righteousness in Christ will dwell in a body that's made perfect by righteousness of Christ. United in burial. The third way we are united with Christ in baptism is united in resurrection. Look at verse 4 again. It says, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that... Here's the purpose. You want to know why your sin nature had to die? You want to know why the old man had to be buried? Here's the purpose. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Verse number 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. When I read that, I just want to say, the glory of the grace of God in the resurrection is beyond my comprehension. Verse 4 tells us, here's your purpose. Here's why you died, so that you could be raised by the power of the glory of God. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too will be raised from the dead. Our resurrection in Christ 
enables us to experience the power of God that brought Jesus back to life. You realize Jesus Christ is the only man who has ever come back to life. Only one who done it on his own power. And because we are united with him, we share in that power of God to resurrection. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Let me ask you a question. Can you go back to the point in your life where this was you? You just lived in the passions of your flesh, whatever you wanted to do, whatever your mind thought, you went out and did it because you wanted to do it. Everybody, all of us have been there. And because of that, it says, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The direct correlation between our being raised in Christ and God's work in doing it is grace. Grace. The grace of God. The Apostle Paul says, He raised you up with Christ, parentheses, by grace you have been saved. You want to know how this happened? Grace. And then he goes on to say this, and He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here's the purpose of it all. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Our being raised up in Christ gives us a share in the resurrection power of God. We are united with Him in a resurrection like His. We are raised up with Him, not just in this life, but also seated with Him in the heavenly places. When God raised you up, your eternal life began. Right then, at that moment, already, everyone in this room who is born again is seated with God in Christ in the heavenlies. Already. Done. Our whole conversion from eternity past to us being born again to eternity future through which our, we have died to sin, our old man is buried, we're raised with Christ, is carried out by the grace of God. That's it. The grace of God to the glory of God. What does this mean for us? As you as a believer, what does this mean? We'll look at verse number 9. Verse number 9 says this. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once and for all. We say, oh, once for all. Well, that must mean Christ died for everybody. He means once and for all final. He'll never die again. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Again, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but 
The free gift of God, Ephesians 2, is what? Grace. Free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The implication of our union with Christ in His resurrection is freedom from death. Freedom from death. We can look at death, and as we're going to read in a minute, we can say, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? I'm not afraid to die because I'm already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So even though this body is tainted and corrupted by sin and this body will die, we await a new body, a body that is like His glorious body in which the final enemy will be defeated. Death will be defeated. We have victory over that in the gospel. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. This perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When this happens, he says, when this perishable puts on the imperishable, when this mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. It's already been written. You're already seated with Christ. And when you're going to see it is when this comes to pass. Then it's going to come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up, immersed, completely covered in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way to have victory and freedom from death is by being united with Christ. This is why we are not universalists. This is why we are not pluralists to say, well, you know, I feel like God is kind of like a house, you know, and everybody has different doors that they can come into, but we're all going to the same place. No! The only way to escape the sting of death is union with Christ. Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, talking about this body, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Freedom from death itself. Number four, we are united with Christ in new life. Going back to Romans 6, starting at verse 3, we read, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Again, verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You've been given new life. Do you understand that? And you start to see how all of these truths build upon one another. If you say, hey, I have new life in Christ, and you don't understand what happened to get you that new life, you'll miss it. 
If you try to live your life out by saying, oh, I'm dead to sin, and you misunderstand the new life that's been given you in Christ, you'll miss it. According to this passage, the very purpose of our conversion, as explained here, being crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, raised with Christ, is in order that, through the glory and power of God Himself, we might walk in newness of life. We've never known life before. We were dead in our sins. We were alive in sins, but dead in them, dead to God in them. We didn't know what life was. This verse doesn't mean, hey, you had an old life and God's going to give you a new life. No, this verse says, hey, you had a dead life and you've never known what real life is before, and so life is going to come and it's going to be new. And you can walk in the Christian life for 75 years. And the day you take your last breath, you'll still be experiencing newness of life that you never knew before. In eternity future, where we have been completely sanctified, completely made perfect, we're going to still be experiencing the newness of life because God is infinite. And as we experience life in Him, it's going to be new forever. Newness of life. Before we were crucified and buried and raised with Christ, the Bible says we were dead. In sin is death. The wages of sin is death. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins. So we are given life by the glory and the grace of God. This is what the Apostle Paul means when he says, The old has passed away. All things have become new. What does this mean for us? For you as the believer who have been born again. It means, this is... Very powerful. It means freedom to God. Freedom, not from something, to something. Not just freedom from slavery to sin. Not just freedom from fear and insecurity. Not just freedom from death. But freedom to live a Godward life. How many of you want to please God with your life? We all want to please God with our life. The problem is this. Paul expounds on it two chapters later in Romans 8. He says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's a real problem. It's a problem for me. If that's where Paul stopped writing in Romans 8, I would close this book and we would go home because it doesn't matter. But he continues by saying, You, however, you, however, Axis Church, Taylorsville, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone, anyone, it doesn't matter, Pope Francis, Donald Trump can bring his Bible that his mom gave him and laid it on the platform, the Dalai Lama can come to London and give an exposition on the parables of Jesus. Anyone, Barack Obama can attend the annual Easter prayer breakfast next Sunday morning. Anyone, it doesn't matter. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit 
who dwells in you. The reality of the believers standing in Christ is our unity and participation in the triune God. Our unity in Christ is the work of the Father. He does it all. He unites you in Christ. We are united in Christ, and our newness of life is given and carried out by the Spirit. This is why if you throw the Trinity out the door, if you believe in Arian heresy, that God offsprung and had Jesus the same way that we have our children, they were not one of the same nature, there is no Holy Spirit, just God the Spirit. You throw these ideas out the door, death to sin, burial of the old man, resurrection with Christ, newness of life in the Spirit is impossible. Impossible. We are free from those things, even more empowered by God to use that freedom to live a life that is pleasing to Him. The very thing we could never do before because of our nature has been conquered in our union with Christ. Number two, what does baptism have to do with the church? This all sounds good, makes me sweaty standing up here, excited. What does this have to do with the church? Number one, what does it have to do with the invisible church? Baptism, spiritual baptism that we're talking about here is the process through which one is born again and included as a member in the invisible church. So in order for you to be a part of the church as we have defined it, all God's elect of all people from all time, that is manifested when this happens to you. So maybe my little girl is one of God's elect, and she's going to be born again one day. You know how I'm going to know that? When I see this happen in her life. You know how she's going to know that? When she sees this happen in her life. So I'll make this my first point, because as I said earlier, water's not here anywhere. There is no water in this passage just the context of grace abounding over sin. So I believe the point Paul's making here is for us to understand that conversion from the perspective as we see it, as God sees it, follows this path. If you get nothing else, know this is what has happened to you. Number one, death of the old man. Your old man's died. Done. It's finished. Number two, the eternal putting away of that old man in burial. He's been buried. You don't have to see him anymore. Whenever you see the effects of the old man, it's like looking at a picture of someone who died a hundred years ago. It's just a representation, just a tag along that hasn't been completely done away with. Number three, resurrection with Christ to eternal life. Resurrection with Christ to eternal life. Victory over death. And number four, the ability to live a new Godward life. That's the picture painted here of being saved or of being converted or of the effects of regeneration. Whatever you want to call it, this is it. Mortification, justification, sanctification, and glorification. That's spiritual baptism. This is what Paul means when he uses the word baptism. Completely in Christ. This is what happens. This is how it looks. Okay? So that's what it means in the invisible church. It includes us into God's covenant people. Number two, physical water baptism is the symbolic ordinance through which one is brought into membership in the visible church. 
spiritual reality into God's elect people, the invisible church. Water baptism symbolically testifies to everyone what has happened to us in the spiritual realm and includes us in the membership of the local church. This is key because there's so many texts in the New Testament about water baptism. It's everywhere. You read the book of the Acts of the Apostles, and Peter's going to stand up on his first ever New Testament sermon. You know what he's going to say? They hear the gospel. Men and brothers, what do we do? Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. We see people believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, like the Ethiopian eunuch. He says, here's water. What's keeping me from being baptized? Somehow, in Philip's exposition of the gospel from Isaiah 53... The death of Christ, His crucifixion, His, re- His burial, His resurrection, His new life in Christ have been exposited and presented in the gospel message such that this guy, when hearing it, understood it and wanted to be baptized in water. So here's water. Why can't I get baptized? What role does physical water baptism play as it brings people into the church? First thing water baptism does is it preaches the gospel. Water baptism preaches the gospel. Anytime someone is baptized, if the person baptizing them doesn't explain what it symbolizes and explain the gospel, then they've missed the whole purpose. If we get up and say, he's here today because he believes in Jesus, and this is an outward expression of his inward faith, uh, I baptize you, missed it. Missed every bit of it. The death burial, and resurrection of Christ must be proclaimed if we are to understand what water baptism symbolizes. And in doing that, much like the Lord's Supper, which we're going to talk about next week, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. We're proclaiming the gospel. And further, more than that, we're proclaiming Christ's victory over death and His ability to bring you in and let you share in that. Number two... Water baptism builds up the church. As a new believer, it's really difficult. You know, if you've been, you were born again two weeks ago, and I came up and asked you, can you explain to me the implications of your union with Christ in His resurrection? You're going to say, I don't know, man. God saved me. I just, praise God, I, I used to be this way, and now God saved me. You might say with John Newton, the only things I know is that I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. That's all I know. But as we as the church grow in our faith, we hear sermons like this, we read books like the book of Romans, and then someone comes to get baptized, they may not fully understand what it symbolizes, but we do. And as we come in and hear things about baptism and see people being baptized, you know what we say? Praise God, I've been crucified with Christ. My old man's been buried. I was raised in the power of the resurrection with Christ. I have new life. That what we just seen him go from here, old man, dead, buried, raised in the newness of Christ, soaking completely in water, just like I'm soaked, covered completely in the Holy Spirit. Praise God. But you know what we do? When people come up out of the water, that guy got baptized. Hey, we had three people baptized this morning. Baptism is supposed to build up the church. And as Paul was talking about, and as we mentioned in the opening of this message, we should long for more grace. And as we see people being baptized, or as you come to faith and get baptized, that's a way for you to experience more grace. Not by sinning, not by going out and doing more sin, but by recognizing the way God communicates His grace to you. Number three, 
Water baptism is the local church's affirmation of one's spiritual conversion. So when we get together, when the elders of our church get together, maybe Paul's going to baptize somebody next Sunday. Before he baptizes them, he's going to get with them. He's going to ask them, explain to me what's happened to you. Tell me in the best way you can, even if you don't know anything about Romans 6, tell me what's happened. They're going to share their, their testimony. I heard you preaching this, this, this. I felt like God was drawing me to himself. I just gave my life to Jesus. I, I confessed my sin. I knew that he could only save me. Okay, praise God. So you know what then the church says? By looking at, let's say, let's take Nate. By looking at Nate, I can say, when we pull him up here to baptize him, Nate's old man has been crucified with Christ. Nate's old man has been buried with Christ. Nate's new man has been raised with Christ, and he's now walking in the newness of life, the power of the Holy Spirit. And by doing that, we are coming alongside him and saying, we see the evidence of this in you, we affirm that, come and be part of our church. That's the purpose of water baptism in the, in the local church. Not the invisible church, but the visible church. Number four, very quickly, water baptism is the initial public confession of faith. Okay, so when someone, you go to these churches that bring people down to the altar, and then they'll pray, and then they'll say, okay, stay up here, and then they'll say, go ahead and tell everybody what Jesus did for you today. Well, uh, the Lord saved me. Woo, praise God. Yeah, you know another way we could do that? Talking to them after the service and baptizing them next week. And this is not fully understood in our culture, where when you get baptized, you invite your family and friends. But in the first century A.D., you take a Jewish man who's got the Talmud on his neck, wearing it around his neck, and he hears Peter preach, and Peter says, Repent, put your faith in Jesus, and he'd be baptized. And he goes to the pool in Jerusalem. There's only one source of water in Jerusalem. That's where the priests would go to get water for the temple. And you take him over there, and you baptize him, and everybody sees hundreds of thousands of people are going to look at him and say, He just forsook the way that we believe, and he's holding on to Jesus. You go to northern India, where I spent six months in 2011. There was these three guys. My second day there, I shared the gospel with them. Very public setting. I didn't know it was illegal to do that. They said, hey, you want to believe in Jesus? And I said, hey, praise God. I know you guys live in southern India. Here's my Facebook. Let me teach you about Jesus. Walked away. At a waterfall. All this water running around. One of the Tibetan believers, he looked at me and he said, if they really believed in Jesus, they'll get baptized right now. And I was like, well, maybe they don't understand it. He said, it isn't about understanding it. It's about everybody else around here understanding it. So we went down in the water. Police around, tourists around, hundreds of people in a place where it was illegal for them to change their faith publicly. And two of these boys were baptized. And what they said to everybody, I'm believing in Jesus. They confessed their faith in a public way. We believe in Jesus. Number five. Water baptism is a command of Christ. This is evident in the Great Commission. What does he say? Go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if that was the only thing we had to go on, then we are to do it. Christ commanded it. And I would say to you as, as, a, as a prelude to application, if you are a believer and you have never been baptized, then you're living in disobedience to Christ. Come, encourage yourself. Communicate grace to the church by being baptized. So number three, finally, summing it all up, how do I apply these truths to my life? What does all this mean? And this question is a little bit different by saying, as we were going through, well, what does this mean for us? In the mind of the Apostle Paul, 
He had a very specific application to this. Look back in Romans 6, beginning in verse 12. Romans 6, verse 12. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Number one, do not let sin reign in your body. It's kind of like we are, he just told you, you're free from sin. Sin has no dominion over you. But then he follows that with the command, so don't let sin rule over you. And this is why I said the importance of the reality of this. He says, sin is no longer your slave master. So when you sin... You're actually going back to your old slave master and saying, I'm free. What do you want me to do? That's what you're doing when you sin. As a Christian sins, you're saying to God, I know grace is amazing. I know grace has abounded past my sin. I know grace has crucified my old man, buried him, raised me up, given me newness of life. That is, praise God, that's amazing. This is better right now. That's what you're saying when you sin. So number two, in contrast, he says, in essence, don't let sin reign in your body. Let God reign in your body. You've been made alive in Christ to God by the Spirit, so present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Romans 12, people like to preach it all the time, and they hate to follow it. He says, by the mercy of God, present your body as a living sacrifice. This is vital because for us it carries the idea of already, but not yet. I told you we've been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That's done. We haven't got our new bodies yet. And our body wants to sin. This is very important. I think this falls in the realm of experiential theology. What does this do for you when you go home today? Because you're going to go home and you're going to be tempted to sin. You're going to lose your temper and mouth off to your wife. You're going to skip family worship tomorrow because you're too tired. You're going to see something on Twitter and look at it when you know you shouldn't. You're going to neglect your Bible this week. You're going to fail to pray this week. So what good does all of this do? Philippians 3. And if you want to read it, you have to turn there. It's not going to be on the screen. Philippians 3. The Apostle Paul says this, beginning in verse 7. I'll give you a minute to find it. Philippians 3, 7. He has just talked about how he would even consider himself blameless under the law. How many of you would say that you are blameless under God's law? The Apostle Paul would say it. He said, as to the law... I'm zealous more than anybody blameless as far as I know. I can't bring a single charge against myself based on God's law. And then he follows this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That is what we just explained in Romans 6. That's what he's talking about. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ. Romans 6, verse 10. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. He says, I want to know my standing in Christ. I want to understand the power of being raised in Christ. And that I may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Whatever I have to do to grasp the reality of Romans 6, I'm going to do it. I count everything as lost if that's what I have to do. And then he says this. This is important because when I read a guy like Paul, I want to walk away from the faith. If I see somebody who says, yeah, give me God's moral law. I've kept it. I still need grace. What does that do for me? When I see the Apostle Paul say, I'm going to count everything as lost, my family, my possessions, my health, my desire for food, my safety, my freedom. I'm going to be in prison for 25 years. I'm going to lose my life so that I can share in the resurrection of Christ. Then I look at myself. I live in a nice house, drive an air-conditioned car, make $500 a week, have a beautiful family, preaching in an air-conditioned building free from persecution. What do I say to somebody like Paul? Because I'm going to sin tomorrow. I'm going to sin today. Verse 12. This is what he says. He paints this picture of what all of us should be like. And then he says this. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. When you sin today and you want to quit or you want to doubt what God has done in your life, you want to doubt His resurrection power, you press on to keep going because Jesus has made you His own. You belong to Jesus. It's not based on what you do. Roy, you go to work tomorrow and you fall. It doesn't matter. It's not on you. Christ has made you His own. Zach, when you try to lead your family, Christ has made you His own. Jacob, as you struggle with being here, trying to work a job, trying to get to the place where you can be free to worship God how He wants to be worshipped, it's not on you. Jesus has made you His own. That's what we walk out that door with. That's what we take out there. That's what we tell to our brothers who say, i done this last week. What am I going to do? Can God have mercy on me? We say, Jesus has made you His own. And you press on because He has made you His own. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He is creating in you and preparing you for an eternal weight of glory that you can't even imagine. He's made you His own. If we get this, we would be a different people. Christ Jesus has made us His own. We have been buried with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might walk in the newness of life. Let's pray together.